and welcome to episode 117 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. In this episode, we'll, in the first half, be talking about do we like unnamed narrators, yes or no? Uh, and in the second half, two early 20th century novels that um, we chose them. Well, I chose, I suggested this combination because they both are quite ahead of their time in the way they show women in quite different ways. One is Sally on the Rocks by Winifred Boggs, and the other is Ex-Wife by Ursula Parrott. But uh, in this episode, Rachel and I are not alone. We do have a special guest. And I, I feel like I'm in the presence of um, reprint greatness <laughs> or old book greatness, a bit of a superstar. You might know her from uh, her recovered uh, or recovered column in the Paris Review. You might know her editing of a collection of stories, A Different Sound, stories by mid-century women writers. You might know her senior editor of McNally Editions. Very excited to introduce Lucy Scores to the podcast. Welcome, Lucy. I am very excited to be here, Simon. And talking about kind of, you know, reprint, reprint royalty, you're up there yourself with your British Library <laughs> Writers series. So I'm in great company. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So kind. Amusingly, uh, when Rachel and I were messaging earlier today about what books we might want to discuss, Rachel sent a link saying, do you know this book? A Different Sound. He said, you do know that's edited by our podcast guest. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm so happy because that's the kind of mistake I would make all the time and then be mortified about afterwards. So good. <laughs> and I, I didn't need to say anything. I could have kept it quiet, but I didn't. I chose to reveal it. Um <laughs> oh, I said that Simon's horrible to me to DC and it's you're proving it. <laughs> there is a myth that Rachel puts out that she's hard done by on this podcast, but um nobody believes it. <laughs> So always, we will start um, by talking about what we're reading recently. But also, Rachel, you've just been off to Africa. How I have. Was- um, it was wonderful, thank you. So um, I just spent nearly three weeks in Zambia and Zimbabwe and a very brief stint in Botswana. Um, and it was wonderful, absolutely amazing. Just nature and animals and, yeah, a very different world to the one I normally live in. So And also lots of sunshine, which was much appreciated after the winter we've had. So... Yeah, just had an absolutely incredible time. Lots of traveling, lots of lions and elephants and yeah, wonderful. Amazing. Did you get any any reading done or was it too busy? No, I did loads of reading. It was just very relaxing. So what did I read? I took books with me and I ran out of books, but thankfully I was with a friend who uh, we managed to swap books with each other. So it wasn't the disaster that it could have been. Um we had very long plane journeys and lots of waiting around at airports. So, you know, there was lots of time to read. So what did I read? I read Homegoing by Yar Gyazi. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, I read her second novel last, a few years ago, I think, well, maybe last year, Transcendent Kingdom, which I loved. And then Homegoing is her first novel, which I really enjoyed. It's about a family, um, two branches of a family moving between Ghana and America in from the sort of, I think, 18th century up to the present day. So that was really interesting. I really enjoyed that. And I also read Agatha Christie's only novel not set in uh, her contemporary world. Didn't know that that even existed. Mm. Death Comes as the, as, as the End, which was the book my friend had. And she started reading it. She was like, this is really weird because I think it's set in ancient Egypt. And and I was like, okay, well, maybe it's just going to be in ancient Egypt for like a chapter and then it'll, it'll come into the... And she was like, no, it's still in ancient Egypt. So we, we Googled it. Um, and she was like, yeah, it's really weird because these are people who are supposed to be ancient Egyptians, but they sound just like people from the 1920s. Um, <laughs> I wasn't sure if I wanted to read it, but then when I started reading it, I was like, okay, if I just forget that this is ancient Egypt and, and just accept that this is happening... Um, it was actually really enjoyable. So I would recommend that as a little anomaly of Agatha Christie's. Um, mm-hmm. Also read, um, oh, I read a wonderful book that I highly recommended. So West with the Night by Beryl Markham, which um, is an autobiography. And it was, I think it was published in 1940. Beryl Markham was uh, born in Britain, but she moved as a child to, to Kenya with her father in the in the 1920s and so she grew up there at a time when um sort of colonial life was very um different i suppose to what it is now and uh, grew up on a farm and then became the first female freelance pilot in the 1930s in east africa basically just traveling or flying around people needed courier services people needed taking from place to place and um had she doesn't actually go into much detail of, of all of the people and things that she 
she did in West with the Night, but I know from her autobiography that she um she did have relationships with quite prominent men and um did a lot of interesting stuff that she doesn't touch on in this book that I'd like to find out more about. But it was really atmospheric and beautifully written, the descriptions of Africa and of flying at night and and just being alone in her her little plane and um yeah, so I really, really enjoyed that. So if you haven't read that, then I would recommend it to anyone who's listening. Quite a variety. Yeah, I've not read any of the books you mentioned. Lucy, have you read any, any of these? I've read Homegoing um, and I really enjoyed it. And I think I've dipped in and out of Markham over the years. I think she I think she was like a, a Virago author at one point. Or she's definitely yeah, she's one part of, her... of the modern travellers, I think. Yes, yeah. I think that's it. And so I'm definitely aware of that book and I think I've read bits of it, but um, it's not... It's not a sort of landscape I know much about, but it sounds fascinating. What a great book to read while you're there as well. Yeah, I know. I'm terrible for doing thematic reading, but um, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's really good. You always get something a little bit more, I, I feel, out of the experience if you're able to read something that's set in the in the environment you're in. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, shame you couldn't go to ancient Egypt, but um, yeah. ne- <laughs> okay. next trip. <laughs> no, next time I'll go to, the, I'll go to Egypt and I'll, I'll take... Um, <laughs> an Egyptian me, yeah. Death on the Nile. Uh, well, true. Um, yes. Um, Lucy, what have you been reading recently? I've been reading, amongst other things, quite a lot of Beryl Bainbridge, um, who mm. is an author who I've dipped into her work over and, um, you know, throughout the past, but I'm sort of going through a bit of a binge at the moment. And I'm particularly enjoying um, her book, English Journey, or The Road to Milton Keynes as a subtitle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the catchy subtitle, um, which I think was published in the early 80s, maybe 1984. And she's retracing um, the uh, sort of famous English journey that J.B. Priestley did in the 1930s, I want to say. Um, along with a I think it's a BBC camera crew they're kind of doing so there was a TV show made at the time and then she wrote this book afterwards and it just has um, I mean it's just classic classic Bainbridge throughout I don't know if any of these of you are fans mm-hmm. but it has the most brilliant opening paragraph um, about her running for a train at, at Waterloo and I just was desperate you know from then I just knew I was going to love this book I love I love her she's so weird and uh, I've read some of her journalism as well I think where she She's clearly been given or they're recommending topics and she writes about them in the least helpful way imaginable, but uh, (laughs) very very amusingly. She brings her own really kind of idiosyncratic view on this journey. I mean, already I'm only sort of, I don't know, I'm about maybe 30 pages into this and she's already um, basically set fire to a hotel room, uh, (laughs) nearly missed the train and kind of had a heart attack because she's so desperate uh, running along the platform to catch it while smoking cigarettes and been mistaken uh, for a tramp. So I think it's kind of got (laughs) off to a great start. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I've not read any of her historical fiction but um but i love i love i've read a few and i love injury time it's sort of like as like if uh abigail's party ended in an armed siege it's uh, mm. incredible i think her books are just wonderful she does such weird things with them and even and i'm not i must admit i'm not a huge fan of historical fiction per se but actually i really like her take on um the sort of the histories that she's picked apart in in her novels i think there's a she's definitely got a particular view on things which makes them very um, digestible and I mean that in the sort of nicest possible way that, mm-hmm. so I'm so impressed by the way that her novels are so slim and historical fiction I sometimes quite find quite sort of heavy going and there's so much kind of material to wade through to get to the story but she's just kind of like scalpel sharp about getting to the the heat of things yeah listeners to Heelbooks will know that I'm with you I tend to run from historical fiction but, uh, <laughs> but sometimes have you read any uh, Barrow Bainbridge Rachel I can't remember I haven't, no. Um, but I'm I'm very intrigued by the sound of it. So I'm going to. I mean, I've, I know of her, obviously, but I've, I've just yeah, never. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of a little bit late. I she's sort of nineteen sixties, right, seventies, etc. Writer, isn't she? And that's a a period that's hmm. a bit desert in my reading experience for some reason. So um, yeah, I will add that to my list of books to, of uh, authors to get to. Absolutely. And yeah, I've just uh, done a little project where I read a book a day in May. So I've been reading a lot or finishing a book a day in May. Um, so I won't talk about all of them, obviously, but I just want to pick a couple highlights, both of which are nonfiction, one a bit older and one that's just come out. Uh, so I read um, Ali at Heaven Ali blog runs an annual Daphne Tomorrow reading week. And I thought, um, I'll try some of her nonfiction. So I read Gerald, her biography of her father, which I've had maybe 15, 20 years, but um, never been inspired to take it off. 
uh, the shelf. And uh, according to the um, sort of enormous advertising on the front, it was the, the book that made her name. I'm not sure how true that is, but it's, uh, yeah, it's it's this very, it's, it's not far off hag- hagiography, I guess, but it's, um, it's a very sympathetic portrait of him, but it's to the point where it feels quite novelistic. So uh, she recounts entire conversations that she wasn't present for, sometimes wasn't alive for. Uh, she it's sort of a fairy tale esque sense of how how wonderful he is in it, uh, and I think because it does feel quite novelistic, it's not annoying that he clearly no no person could have been as as noble as as he was in that book. But, um, <laughs> and I get the impression from other things I've heard, and indeed from what she wrote about him later in life, that probably <laughs> yeah she didn't really think that about him. But he, she published it, I think, either the year or the year after he died. So in in a period where naturally she was thinking the best of him but it's a, yeah, it's a page turn i really enjoyed it uh, and lots of that theatrical history um as i'm sure you guys know he was a um theater director and actor so he uh yeah lots to say about late victorian early uh, edwardian theater i think it's that period she had quite a kind of odd relationship with him didn't she because she was very like i think when she was younger in particular she really sort of hero worshipped him and also saw herself very much as a kind of um you know, the sort of direct line of descent in terms of creativity and also mm, mm. Um, sort of romantic, her romantic inclinations as well, very much based on her father's uh, sort of identity in those areas as well. Interesting. Yeah, I need to um, need to read a biography of her or something, something more objective. Oh, yeah, she's but, uh, great. She's got a fascinating life. I think there are some really good biographies. There's quite a few biographies written of her, by her, of her, sorry, not by her. <laughs> yeah, and I did have the Margaret Forster for a long time, but it, it went in a recent cull list because it was so big, I thought I could never be able to pick this up. <laughs> but, that is a good one. That is a good one. Yeah, yeah well, maybe I'll get the paperback. <laughs> and uh, the other book I was going to mention, very different, it's called A Flat Place by Noreen Masood, which I probably wouldn't have read except that Noreen is a... Um, I guess a friend of mine. We only overlapped in person briefly in Oxford, but we stayed in touch online. And it's um, a memoir about flat landscapes and complex post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which is a combination you wouldn't necessarily predict. But yeah, she uh, she grew up in Pakistan until she was 15 and then moved uh, to this country. Her mum was British-born. Um, and uh, it's basically about the complex post-traumatic stress disorder that she had from living uh, with a not violent but very controlling and um i guess confusing father uh and she's never really allowed to leave the house or that sort of thing uh and i hadn't heard of complex post-traumatic stress disorder but it differs from post-traumatic stress disorder in as much as it's not normally connected to specific events it's more about ongoing trauma if that makes Mm -hmm. sense and then how she finds uh I guess some sort of solace or some sort of uh, connection with flat landscapes that it goes, she travels around different bits of the UK and also links back to fields that she used to travel past in Lahore. So yeah, absolutely brilliant and uh, very raw and honest and moving. And um, she's a very, very good writer. So yeah, I recommend. Very, yeah, kind of a heavy subject matter if you haven't read it, but it sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Right, yes, in the first half of today's episode, we're looking at unnamed narrators. Uh, and this is, Rachel and I are always grateful to not have to think of a topic. <laughs> so uh, we're very grateful that Lucy came up with this one. So Lucy, uh, what made you uh, think about this? I think when you emailed and asked me about it, I had just finished writing a review of a new novel with an unnamed, not a narrator in that case, but an unnamed central character. And as I was writing the review and reading the book, I kept thinking, God, I feel like I'm coming across unnamed narrators and unnamed characters so often in fiction today. And I know it's a trope that's always been, you know, it's it's not been invented in the last few years. There's plenty of novels looking back through the 20th century that use the device for various different reasons. But I was just trying to work out why in particular, and I think in particular um, women writers at the moment seem to be using it for women, for female characters quite often. And what is it that like sort of you know what is it that they're trying to do with that is it just I don't know one of those things that happens that people sort of jump on the bandwagon or is there something kind of weirder going on interesting yeah it's one of those ones where when you mentioned it for first I was thinking I can only think of a handful but then when I (laughs) when I read these 31 books in May I think maybe 25 of them 20 22 22, uh, of them were fiction and of those I realized that five or six had unnamed main characters or narrators 
And were they mostly new books or older books? They were mostly, well, let's have a look. I just, so uh, Sagittarius by Natalia Ginsberg. So that's quite old. My Face for the World to See by Alfred Hayes, also relatively old. Foster by Claire Keegan, relatively new. Uh, Making Love by Jean-Philippe Toussaint, which uh, I can't remember when that was. 90s maybe and the forensic record society by magnus mills which again is relatively new so a bit of yeah a bit of a mix um i mean what they do have in common is all being very short which i don't know if that if it's an easier thing to sustain in a, in a novella than it is across the space of a novel yeah i don't um, know it seems to be that there's just i don't know what it is i think i i think i was interested because i was starting to think like what can you do with an unnamed without you know without naming someone so you know, what does this stand in for? Is this the idea of someone who's kind of being oppressed and dehumanised? I mean, the famous example is like, you know, The Handmaid's Tale, which obviously you kind of get to know the the um, character's name, but it's not, you know, the, the lack of name there is very important. And then there's all these female novels from across the 20th century that I was thinking about, ones that I really enjoy, where it's clearly a sign of lack of agency, things like mm, Anna B. Mm. Mortimer's The Pumpkin Eater or um, Du Maurier's Rebecca, obviously. That's a of really course, yes. big one. And then even The Yellow Wallpaper, which is quite early on, the Charlotte Perkins Gilman, uh, her kind of novella. Um, and then the kind of, I don't know, and then there's kind of more recently, I think it's morphed into a sort of device to be used sometimes so there's a bit of a kind of crossover between author as narrator and vice versa. Mm, that, mm. You know, in, in autofiction, it becomes something that's being used um like that and i wonder if a lot of the novels the new novels that i've been reading recently where i see it come up again is it just a sort of you know a bit of a zeitgeisty thing going on um or not rachel what came to your mind first when, when the topic was suggested well i mean rebecca was the first novel that i thought of and i think it's quite an interesting one because i think the first time i read it which was years ago when i was a teenager it didn't even occur to me that we'd never seen, never heard the narrator's name. Mm. Uh, it just didn't enter my mind. And then I think when I read it the second time a bit later, I I got to the end and thought, oh, that's actually really interesting that that we never find out who she who she is. We don't know anything about her really, about her past or you know, and her name being kind of emblematic of that. And then thinking about that within kind of feminist literary criticism thinking about her as being very much someone who is erased and you know I have probably strong feelings about the coerciveness of her relationship with Maxim and um you know I don't I don't see it I find it quite a disturbing novel really um much more so now than I did when I was younger but I mm. I think it's it, that is is for me the the most prominent 20th century novel with the unnamed narrator and I think it's something that people have played on in rewriting the novel as well trying to find out you know giving her a name finding out who this person is um and I think I think I'm right in saying that that, that Villette by Charlotte Bronte is a is a major 19th century novel that doesn't the the female narrator you never find out what her name is um I don't think so anyway or she doesn't sort of mm. tell us herself who she is um is it so, not narrated by Lucy Snow or is he is it somebody knows I can't remember Lucy, yes, it is, but I think for a while we don't know who she is, and I, okay. I think that's. Quite, I mean, I might be misremembering that, but I, I felt like that was quite interesting at the time because it was very different to um, Jane Eyre, which is such a strong um, sense of self at the beginning, and you know exactly who she is right from right from the start. Um, I'm quite distracted because there is a child screaming right outside my window. I was going to say, I was wondering who had a child in the background. <laughs> Feeling going on. I don't know what is wrong with this child. Why they're so deeply unhappy? Um, <laughs> it's uh, about it's, agency in the mid twentieth century yeah, novel, I'd imagine. Oh goodness, yeah. like what is this child? I'm going to shut the window so I don't <laughs> down the street. Um, so yeah, I'm. I think um, it's it's interesting though that I do think it's quite a twentieth century phenomenon that you don't tend to find it um, in novels before twentieth mm. century. So. Um, I, uh, I think it's that perhaps there's a kind of I don't know a modernity to that sense of you know it doesn't matter who I am it doesn't matter you don't need to know who I am um, that we don't there's a kind of unknowingness and an uncertainty and a liminality about these characters that means that the that the person is erased in a way and there's it doesn't matter who their identity is it's more about their story and their perspective I don't know. 
Yeah, I was thinking about some of these ones that I've just read, and some of them it does seem to be very much uh, they're trying to like like my face for the world to see by Alfred Hayes is is all about sort of the anonymity of people who getting swept away in old Hollywood, and you know it wears away at the identity or something like the Forensic Record Society or Magnus Mills is uh, it's clear that the main character might as well just be called Bloke. <laughs> so that's sort of what they're trying to get across, and it, all the characters who are named are called things like Pete and James and Sid, and like very sort of blandly anonymous names um but then something like making love by jean-philippe tusson is this very intimate portrayal of a relationship breaking up whilst on holiday and you get to know the characters really deeply and it's very much individualistic and so there it feels weirder that the, the name isn't there because uh it's not like a, a second mrs de winter situation where it's, it's a part of her being um feeling insignificant and being treated as insignificant by so many people uh so, yeah, I mean, I guess there's no unlikely to be a single rule why it happens, but it is interesting that it can either be um, still this character you know really deeply, just don't know their name, or it can be uh, used to highlight that you don't know the person very well. I think there's a question, isn't there? It's like, is it, are names even important? I mean, what does What does it do if you don't know somebody's name? Does it prevent you from knowing who they are? And I quite often get to the end of a book and don't realize until I'm writing about it on my blog or something when I think oh what was the character's name oh we we didn't know that we were never told it <laughs> someone's taken all that time to name their characters carefully Simon and you're like oh, who are they again it's gone <laughs> um and someone like I don't know the Provincial Lady that we talk about so often uh we don't know her name um and I guess then it's partly because she's meant to be an every woman as well I guess but uh mm-hmm. these characters you can spend so much time with um the thing that did annoy me about Rebecca actually is that there's one character who says to her, oh, what a lovely name you've got at some point. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have noticed if you hadn't highlighted that. I don't know what name he's talking it's about. Daphne being tricksy with us. It's the kind name. of name. Daphne. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. They're always the ones where it makes sense, like Rebecca um, or the pumpkin eater, or um, I don't know. Those ones I, I'm, I, it's kind of clever and it's fun to think about it I'm just more intrigued by some of the other ones where you can't some of the novels where you just can't quite work out what the point of it is like mm-hmm. do you need, but I think also maybe your point about do we need to know a character's name is is a kind of interesting one because I guess we're so used to thinking that's um, such a defining factor but the idea that you could write a whole novel without having to name your character and it not look kind of weird or overly like that like there is something missing from the text then there's no reason to right like it doesn't it doesn't really matter yeah that's a good point and i i think if going back to what you're saying earlier it does feel zeitgeisty and sometimes it's just done for for no reason in the same i mean people who listen to this will know that my uh my ongoing horror of novels that don't use speech marks, which just again seems to be <laughs> a thing that people do oh for God, no I've reason. Just, I've just reviewed a novel which has no speech marks and no names, so the oh. horror of <laughs> I, I assume it'll win the booker. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I'd hope that any good editor would say, like, why have you not named your character or characters? Like, what, what, what are you hoping to achieve? I remember that was a big thing. I didn't read it, but when Milkman won the um, mm-hmm. the Booker, they, when they called he and she or him and her or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and that became a big thing that people mentioned. But I think, yeah, often, as you say, Rachel, you can get to, it. Yeah, it's not if it's it doesn't necessarily have to be an important part of someone's identity. I mean, I um, guess if, if you're making a fuss about it, it shows that it hasn't been done particularly successfully, unless there's a real reason true. for it. You know, I think that's a di- maybe that's the difference that the reason I kind of started thinking about it was because I realised that the novel I was writing about, I suddenly thought, oh, that, that character doesn't have a name and that's important for, you know, X, Y, or Z reason. But then I started thinking about others and wondering, and if you realise it, I think when you're reading and you feel like it's an oversight, that clearly doesn't work. But the novels that it does work in... Um, they're the intriguing ones when there's not quite a reason for it, but it also hasn't marred the reading experience. Are there any examples where you think it's been done particularly badly? I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. Done particularly badly. I don't know. Not off the top of my head. I think that's another interesting thing. I mean, I was going through various, I mean, the last few weeks alone, I reviewed like Madeline Lucas's new novel, Thirst for Salt, which has an unnamed um, narrator in it. Anna Metcalf's new novel, Chrysalis, which has a central character who doesn't have a name, um, Mrs. S by Kate Patrick, and no one in that is named apart from Mrs. S. Um, like Patricia Lockwood did it in her 
novel, no one is talking about this. Uh, you know, Katie Kitamura's last novel, Intimacies. And these are all novels which I very much admired and thought were mm-hmm. really fascinating and very interestingly done. So no, in that sense, it's all, you know, Otessa Moshfeg's My Year of Rest and Relaxation, that has an unnamed um, central figure in it. Uh, things like Rebecca Watson. I mean, this is what was, I, when I started sort of yeah, writing them yeah, down yeah. and thinking about it, I thought these are all really interesting novels. Like, they're, and they're all doing something with, you know, you could argue they're all doing, most of them are doing something with the idea of young female um, characters, narrators, and like you know how we're how they're sort of telling the stories about their lives. But I can't think of it done badly. Um, but if someone wants to jump in with me, <laughs> but um, I mean, I can't think of any particularly badly. Can you, Rachel? No, and I mean, I think it's interesting thinking about it in terms of you know what we notice and what we don't notice when we read, um, and what people. Um, feel it's important to have in a novel to enable them to connect to a character. So some people, you know, find it quite difficult to connect to characters who don't have names, who feel like every people in a sense. Um, whereas I don't think for me it's something that I even latch onto in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. being bothered that I don't know what the person's name is. I think if it's if it's a deliberate device and and the person doesn't reveal their name because they're you know they're making a point of I'm not telling you this about me and I'm secretive and I'm you know I I'm deliberately eluding um, information from you and I'm I'm hiding something about myself and um, I'm I'm leading you down the garden path and that's the whole point of the book that you've got this unreliable narrator who's a, who's sort of a shadowy figure but um, otherwise I think it's for me it, it's not really important to to necessarily know what somebody's name is and I don't know I think if 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 you go through a whole novel and you're being really deliberate about I'm never going to reveal this person's name mm-hmm. so people are directly speaking to them they never refer to them by name and so on and so forth I think it it unless there's actually a purpose to it or that it, there's a I can look at it and read it and think oh theoretically I, I can see why why this is happening and it feeds into this theme or this idea or whatever I just think it's a bit gimmicky <laughs> yeah I think that's yeah that's fair. I, mean, that's, I was thinking look at look again at these novels I just read something like Sagittarius by Natalia Ginsburg I thought it was absolutely brilliant short novella about tensions in a in between a mother and her daughters and um I don't think it would have been any better or worse novel if there were the names in there it just makes it harder to write about it <laughs> um, which maybe it's a way to stop people reviewing them um uh, i think going back to what you're saying Rachel, about the victorian novel i was thinking the equivalent there i guess is often they wouldn't give the place or the year they'd be like 18 yeah. dash dash or dash shire or something um, um, and the you know people's military um units that have always got a dash next to them yeah yeah and curiously there is sort of it seems to be this sort of quest for authenticity where it's saying if I don't tell you the exact thing then I'm then I can't be wrong <laughs> or if I don't place it somewhere then it can't be the wrong place uh or, or sort no, of a no place there's also a, a sense of, of wanting you to believe in the 19th century novel that you're reading something real and and I wonder whether there's an element of that to to this unnamed narrator this sense of I am a real person. I can't reveal everything about myself. I don't want to be identified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, perhaps there's there's that desire to to want us to to feel more. I don't know, fallen into this this world in a way of of feeling that, you know, gosh, this this is something that's really happening, and um, you know, I I could potentially look this person up online or something like that. You know, I don't know. There's mm-hmm. a something interesting psychologically there. I think about that connection between the the reader and the text and that level of believability. Um, you know, and I think Diary of a Provincial Lady is a really good example that you brought up. Again, I hadn't even thought about the fact that we don't know her name. Of course we don't. Mm. Uh, so why would she mention it? She's writing a book about herself. Why would any of us mention our own names? Mm. Um, and and I think that's that's also really interesting about, you know, do we believe the Diary of a Provincial Lady more because we never actually know exactly what her name is? Interestingly, when the BBC did their already afforded an adaptation of it they decided she was called elizabeth uh, and and i was reading <laughs> i think an interview with the first thing saying if you read the book carefully it does at one point reveal that she is called elizabeth and i was thinking i'm sure it doesn't and i 
and I, next time I read it, I read it a lot. I looked through, and at one point she says, "I try to imagine myself of Elizabeth of her German garden," and I think maybe oh. <laughs> the the person who read the adaptation thought, "Oh, she just told us her name," not recognizing the reference. That was my guess, but it, yeah, it did become weird. I mean, I guess all of these things must be harder when you then, if they are adapted for radio or for screen where it's harder to get away with not naming someone but also in in sort of dire provincial lady it's i feel like it's kind of important that you don't know her name as well Mm -hmm. right because as a i mean there's the element of sort of anonymity but also the sense that she is a ordinary woman going about ordinary life yet her ordinary life is extraordinary in the same way that all our lives are right and so for me i think it would it sort of adds to the um it adds to the message i think you're absolutely right yeah yeah i definitely agree um, well, I mean, we should we could talk all day, but we should come to the decision making point. Uh, do we like unnamed characters or not, uh, Rachel? Why don't you kick us off? I mean, I really don't mind either way. So um, that's not oh. how this podcast works, Rachel. You know that. <laughs> I, know. I I quite like it when I don't know somebody's name because um, it's you know I think it it adds something. It's it's either interesting, it's either something for me to get interested about, or it's something for me to get annoyed about. So I can feel something about it, <laughs> just to feel anything. Just, just, just to feel something. Um, so yes, I, I, will, I will go with yes. I do. Great, Lucy. I'm going to go with yes as well because not only are all the kind of examples I gave you books that I like and admire and think it's done well but also I am notoriously bad at forgetting people's names in real life so (laughs) this makes me feel slightly better that one might not need to know them (laughs) um I think I'm gonna fall just on the side of no in as much as uh I can already feel it's going to happen in every new novel and I'm preemptively annoyed about it (laughs) (laughs) I think it's done really well great but I I think more often than not I think the problem would be just as good if they had a name. Um, well, there we go. As I say, when we've got three people, a side can win. So uh, congratulations to everyone who is pro-unnamed characters, <laughs> <laughs> that fan group. Um, something I've not warned you about, Lucy, I'm afraid, is that we we, we are often get questions for the middle section just to quickly answer in between uh, the two sections. And today, Stu has got in touch to ask us, is there a particular year which we think is the um, favourite for books being published? It's going to be a tricky one to answer, but um, since I didn't warn either of you, I can answer it first. As you think, we'll <laughs> <laughs> spring these things on Rachel. So. I was going to say that's a question that needs a little bit of research, surely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you thought when you, but I mean, whilst I've known about it for a while, I've done I've done no research. So. Okay. That's good. Yeah, give us the question again, so we can. So, which year is your favourite for for books being published in? I'm sure there's a better way to to word that than I can think of. Favorite year of books. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the sort of thing you could spend a year researching, or you could just do on instinct. So we're going to do the latter, <laughs> and um, I'm going to say yes, 1927. Sure, um, it just. <laughs> 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 uh, and can I think of any books published in 1927? The Love Child by Edith Olivier was published in 1927. Um, it's just, it's just. I mean, I love the 1920s in general. Uh, it's this great period of um, sort of ebullience after the war, but also everyone being quite anxious about things and trying to cover it up. Um, and 1927 is my is my absolute favourite of those years for reasons I don't w- wish to go into. <laughs> Rachel? Um, okay, well, actually, I will say my probably favourite year of books being published is approximately I'm going to say 1943 because I find books written in the middle of World War II absolutely fascinating because you've got the depiction of being in the middle of a war you don't yet know how it's going to end so there are a couple of books um Elizabeth an Elizabeth Byrne book um that's published in the middle of the war that I really enjoy um and I can't remember the exact one (laughs) myself trying to think I'm going to say the heat of the day but it probably won't be and yeah, I find that sort of the tenseness and that real snapshot of a moment in time that is, you know, you're not, you're never going to see that anywhere else. Really fascinating. 
I think nice. the heat of the day was written after the war, just to be <laughs> awkward here. <laughs> One of my novels was definitely written in the war. No, I think it's set during the war, but she famously said that she didn't like writing. She couldn't write novels during the war. I'm being such an awful person mentioning this now. but only I, I love this. I'm I relishing this. I find it really this. interesting, but she said that she could only write short stories during the war because they remind... She said that it was the, that was the only medium that could... Um, okay, well, maybe that's what I've like. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of is her short stories. Then, yeah, she wrote really good short stories during the mm. war. So that's definitely what you're thinking of. <laughs> this is what happens when we get a professional, on, Rachel. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I made myself sound like a complete idiot. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted. You said anything. No, no, always, always correct Rachel if you can. Oh God, no! No, I feel terrible. I feel like we're bullying her or something. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'm used to it. And also, um, <laughs> I, I generally don't know what I'm talking about, so it's absolutely <laughs> Oh, dear. Well, you've got to be correct with anything you say about your year now, Lucy. Okay. Off the top of my head, and so please Google me just to check, check this, but I think I'm going to pick 1977. Ooh. Because... Um, Two books were published that year. This is all I can, I mean, there's plenty of other book, really good books published, but the two I can think of that I think have the same day are They by K. Dick, which mm. um, we published at McNally Editions last year, which I think was a really interesting uh, rediscovery. And my favourite Margaret Drabble novel, The Ice Age, which is not very well read, but mm. I think one of her best works. And from that sort of early period of writing, just on the cusp where she's going from these quite small scale um, sort of, you know, very intimate dramas into these bigger state of the nation stories. And it's perched right on the edge there. And I love that. And also, I feel like the 70s was, as I've got older, I've got weirdly more interested in the 70s as quite a strange kind of decade of a lot of disturbance and sort of strangeness and people mm. feeling very um, sort of, I don't know, in a very precarious position in life, I think. Amazing. And I think to link it back to early conversation, Injury Time is also 1977. No yeah. way. There, there you go. go. Perfect. Brilliant. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, Stu, for that incredibly difficult question to answer. I hope we, we did it some justice. Uh, if you, any, anyone else would like to ans- ask us an easier question, um, tea or books at gmail.com is a place to do that. And we come on to our two novels. Um, in a moment, maybe um, Lucy and I can talk about how we found and <laughs> republished these novels from places we respectively do editorial stuff. But for now, um, Rachel, could you give us a quick intro to Sally on the Rocks? Well, I could, but I I was actually thinking perhaps you ought to do it, seeing as uh, you wrote yeah, the other yeah. <laughs> yes, I have actually lent my copy to a friend, so I'm going to see if I can remember the names of people. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Names aren't important, right. Simon, don't worry Not important. <laughs> actually, I don't think anyone's named in it, if, if memory serves. <laughs> Um, I've read it several times. I should be all right. But uh, so it's it was published in 1915. It's set in 1914, I think. Um, and Sally has been living in France, but she is she wants to get out. War is on its way, um, and she gets a letter from a lady called Miss Maggie in the village where she had previously lived with uh, as a ward of the vicar, saying that the bank manager um, is looking for a wife, and he's rich, and maybe she should come and try and snare him. Uh, and Miss Maggie doesn't think this is likely to happen. She just wants to stir the pot and make life harder for everyone. And But Sally, without many options open to her, she is indeed on the rocks, uh, comes back to this village, the name of which I actually do forget. And um, turns out Mr. Bingley, the name of that of that uh, gentleman, is appalling, horrible, uh, ghastly proposition, but indeed wealthy. And as Sally says, at 31, uh, what she say? Something like at 31, love isn't... Nope. <laughs> going to cut some of this out. Um, if I can find the quote. Bear with me. As she says, you're not out for romance at 31. It's a business. Uh, she ends up in this love triangle with a widow called Mrs. Dalton. But both of them recognise that the, the uh, catch is not really such a catch. And it's, yeah, I, I found it um, a very funny and often quite moving look at World War One, and in some ways a very modern love triangle. Uh, Lucy, can you introduce us to Ex-Wife, please? 
Yes. So Ex-Wife was published in 1929. And when it first came out, it was published anonymously. And it was an instant bestseller. People were very excited by it. It's basically the story of a divorce and the aftermath and uh, set in jazz age New York. I think it's 1924 when it opened. So just a few years earlier. And uh, Peter and Patricia, who's the main character, Patricia, um, they have a very modern marriage. Both of them work. They both go out and drink a lot. They both go out and dance a lot. Um, and they end up falling into each of them end up falling into bed with different people who aren't their partner and some uh home truths then come out and there's some uh, patricia realizes that actually things aren't quite so uh quite so sort of fun and games for a so-called liberated woman at that time they get a divorce and then what you see is the aftermath of that and how patricia sort of gets through um the sadness and sort of what it's like to be an ex-wife during this era, which Ursula Parrott, the um, author, described as the era of the one night stand, uh, which to me was kind of incredible. Because when I first came across this book, when I first read it, I thought that it was a sort of contemporary, like written recently, but somebody writing about the 1920s. It seems so modern and so um, kind of open about sex, about adultery, about um, drinking, all these various things, even about abortion. Uh, but actually, no, written in 1929. So quite a radical book that's also a bit of a page turner, I would I would argue anyway. Lovely. Thank you. And how, yeah, how did you first come across this book? Well, I have to thank my uh, colleague, Jeremy. He came across a copy of it in uh, in a secondhand bookshop um, somewhere in upstate New York where he lives. I can't remember the details exactly because uh, it's not an area I know particularly well. But he came to one of our editorial meetings saying, I just came across this. It looks kind of cool. And he read it and loved it. And then we all got our hands on copies and, and all read it and loved it immediately and just thought it was kind of great. And like, we had to publish it. So that was it. What about you and Sally on the Rocks? Yeah, so um, I I think uh, a lot of listeners will know Scott's blog, Furrowed Middlebrow, where he has this invaluable uh, resource where he's got a list of women writers, British and Irish uh, women writers from the early 20th century and just basically everyone that ever existed. And uh, when I was trying to find more book suggestions for the British Library Women Writers um, series, I would scroll through and read and see what looked interesting and see what I could find uh, and I came across the name Winifred Boggs and it wasn't actually Sally on the Rocks that appealed to me there was a book called The Indignant Spinsters I thought well what That's an a amazing brilliant title, title. <laughs> isn't it amazing I thought well I have to ha- have to get hold of that um, and I think at that point there weren't any copies for, copies for sale online but I put sort of a, a want request on AV books so if it ever came up I'd, I'd get hold of it but what I did find was Sally on the Rocks um, which I didn't read instantly. I think I did wait until finally the indignant spinsters became available, got a copy of that. Turns out it's, it's not great. It's, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) but It does not live up to the amazing title. Uh, It's much sort of frothier, lighter, um, less like emotional believability than, than, than I would argue is in selling the rocks. It's very, um, you know, people falling in love at first sight and then falling out Mm -hmm. of love instantly and that sort of thing. But uh, I think, I was interested enough to keep reading Sally on the Rocks and I more or less instantly fell in love with it. And thankfully the people at the British library agreed with me. Um, and I think it was less than a year after I read it, that it was then back in print, which is one of the sort of great privileges uh, of being in the position where you can <laughs> uh, recommend something. Um, yeah. So those two books, maybe we'll start with uh, an objective third party, Rachel. So you, you <laughs> did you uh, read these both for the first time? Uh, for the podcast I did yes and um, I wasn't entirely sure what to expect of either of them and um, yeah I mean Sally on the Rocks I found well both of them actually as you were saying Lucy I found them incredibly refreshingly modern um, quite surprising really to, to see that they were written when they were mm-hmm. the frankness of the discussions about sex and relationships and emotions um, particularly, I think Sally on the Rocks as well, you know, because it is an Ed- Edwardian era novel. So you are uh, kind of, I guess, we all have these expectations that that you're not going to have these things discussed, and um, th- you know, there there is a, a real freshness about it that I I found wonderful actually and I think Sally as a character was wonderful I mean the the thing that made me laugh the most at the beginning was the idea of of having your hair dyed by having your hair <laughs> <made>. <laughs> I 
so every so every um, of the British Library books has this sort of period of uh, this section at the front where it talks through things I have on different dates and the afterword that I write. And I spent so long trying to find out if this was a real thing, and I can find no evidence that it existed <laughs> outside of this book. But I need, uh, I'd be I'd love to know more if. Yeah. If X-rays can tell you blonde. <laughs> I mean, let's. I feel like I need to experiment with this. It's fascinating. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, I loved that detail, and and also the. It, it's interesting because it's it's she's a very funny character. She's very lighthearted. She's very spirited. She's very independent. All of those things, but there is also a, a deep seated sadness about her and uh, a restlessness, and you see in her th- that. I think a a perennial problem that that women face in in that you're you you live in a society where certain things are valued and certain um kind of ideals are 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 held up to to women and and how women should live their lives and regardless of whether you feel comfortable or uncomfortable with that it's it's very difficult to separate yourself and what you want from from what society wants for you and to work out what it is actually that will make you personally happy um and you see that dilemma of hers throughout the novel, you know, does she, she's, it's, you know, it's all very funny, her, you know, trying to to win the hand of this hideous Mr. Bingley um, and, and wanting to be comfortable and, and her being very tongue in cheek about it. But there is also that, that real reality of actually, if she doesn't marry somebody and have some money, she is going to be destitute. She's got nothing and she's got no she says it herself, she's got no skills, she's got no education. What can she do? You know, what what job can she do? How can she support herself to a decent standard of living? She's tried and she, and she's not been very successful at it. So you've got that that the humor of it, but underneath it is a very real pressing quite concerning and disturbing problem of of the reality that many women like Sally would have ended up having to marry someone they couldn't stand just in order to have a roof over their head. And yeah, I, I found it, you know, I wanted to be laughing at it, but it was a kind of uncomfortable reading experience because it was also a little bit close to the bone, really, in terms of actually many women probably did end up marrying a Mr. Bingley and being absolutely miserable. It just made me think of, I mean, the name Mr. Bingley, I was, I had <laughs> um, obviously Pride and Prejudice in my head the whole time, but I, I very much made me think of, of Charlotte and her marrying the awful vicar in Mm. prejudice and thinking Mm -hmm. and her saying to elizabeth oh it's fine because you know i've got my own living room and just thinking oh god it's awful it's awful and i was thinking that's what's going to happen to sally and i really didn't want her to marry him um so yeah sally on the rocks uh, i i found fascinating from that perspective would i say it was a feminist novel i think to the extent that maybe you can you could be feminist at that time there's lots of elements of it rankled with me still but um I think it 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 was interesting to see a woman writing about these things and having these thoughts and having these sort of processes at that time um I found ex-wife more problematic from that sense because of the I mean again loved the freshness of it loved the frankness of it loved the fact that Patricia is out to to please herself and, and make herself happy in many ways but the need and the desperation to to kind of hang on to to Peter at the beginning really rankled with me as well. That that idea of you know well, how could you just debase yourself like that? And um, you know he's thrown you through a window. He's forced you to abort your child, and yet you still want him. Like it just oh, it just made me so angry. So I yeah I I, I found myself feeling quite emotionally. Um, kind of viscerally more angry at her than I did at Sally. And I, I wonder why that is. And I don't think that's probably very fair of me, but yeah, I don't know. What, uh, Lucy, what, what, how did you feel towards her as a character? Towards Patricia? Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting question. I mean, I've read this a few times now over the course of the last couple of years and I completely see where you're coming from. It does seem terrible that she's willing to debase herself like this but I think what what saves it for me is the fact that I really I buy her desperation put it that way like I buy the fact that she's desperately in love with people and I feel like we've all either 
been in that sort of situation or seen someone we love in that sort of situation and gone like I don't understand why you're doing this this person treats you terribly and yet you know she she does this and I think that I suppose the other thing I'd say is that the the story um I think Parrot is very clear about the fact that this is a world in which women are kind of damned if they do and they're damned if they don't right like Patricia hasn't really got any options like she can't she tries to be the kind of modern woman that Peter wants and you know she thinks they're living this uh, very sort of fair and equal life and then they're really not the double standards you know when she when he sleeps around it's fine when she sleeps around it's really not yeah. um and you know at the same time she's kind of having to go out and work and she's doing all these things and he just won't you know I don't know he won't forgive her and I think that um and I think as much as I understand the way that Parrot thought I mean I think um she was very much not a feminist she thought that as well, even the fact that she wrote um, a huge amount of lifetime was a kind of and made an awful lot of money out of it and was married lots of times and yet sort of you know died in a pauper's ward in a in a hospital even after having made all that money but I think she was very she herself had a very kind of you know um ambivalent relationship to women's rights and sort of freedoms that they were granted at the the turn of the century um, I mean obviously this is a little bit later than that but I think there's a great line in Alicia Bennett's forward to our new edition where she describes um, you know Patricia being one of those women who's lurching towards the sexual revolution but still psychologically mm-hmm. tethered in Victorian morality mm-hmm. and for me that really comes across in the book that you know there's Patricia's sort of you know she, she really can't do anything um, to help herself in many ways as much as she tries to but I think there is also, you know, a lot of people would get quite um, upset with her or fed up. And in a way, I'm surprised that her friends don't get more fed up with her, that she sort of needs a friend almost to kind of tell her to pull herself out of it at various mm-hmm. points. Um, but she hasn't quite got to the stage of lying in bed and just eating ice cream. So maybe that's what saves her. <laughs> I don't know. You should invent the freezer first. That's the, yes, <laughs> that maybe that's it. She does drown her sorrows in plenty of highballs, though. So Yes. Yeah, I thought um I mean I, I thought ex-wife was was brilliant and so yeah, as you say, so modern. It felt um sort of what you were alluding to, uh, Lucy, it felt like the sort of character we'd see now in a in a TV series about the twenties. But when you yeah. actually most of the time when you read a novel from the twenties, they're actually quite conservative or or, or they're quite traditional. Whereas this felt like we think flappers were, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, even if we don't see that in literature that often. Um, but at the same time, so I, yeah, she's, as you say, she's drinking, she's, she's sleeping around even with her, there are some consequences, but, but she's not sort of shunned by society, mm. but, um, but compa- so in some ways it, it's much more modern than Sally on the Rocks in terms of the lifestyle of the heroine, but something I found really interesting, I think the most feminist, the most modern thing about Sally on the Rocks for me is that love triangle where the women are on the same side. And yeah. even even now it would be refreshing if there was a love triangle for the women to say, actually, let the best woman win. Um, we're not going to pit the woman against the woman. We're going to recognize the man is dreadful. Because, I mean, there's, there's a few love triangles with your ex-wife as it, keep, as it goes, but there's that, that, that early one where um, there isn't any sort of sororal understanding between the women involved and uh, she's... Um, yeah, she suddenly seems more forgiving of Peter than any of the women that he might end up with. Uh, it's a much more cutthroat world, I think. That's one mm, thing about mm. it. That it's not, you know, there's, there's, there is a sense of sisterly kind of um, feeling amongst Patricia and her sort of flatmate and the yes, other yeah, yeah. But you know, it, when it comes to actually men, that's not the case. I think you're completely right. Can I also say that one of the things I found really interesting about Sally on the Rocks, in terms of its um, being quite modern or really realizing what was going on, is the way that it talks at one point about um, Bingley himself being objectified by the two women. I love that bit mm-hmm. where they talk about his things being what attracts them to him that they're very honest and open about this and you know there's lots of things you could say in this book about the objectification of women uh these kind of beautiful things that people want around the home and you know to look pretty but there's also something going on with the men and it's a very kind of you know I found that quite refreshing as well this idea that these women know exactly what they're doing that they're not marrying for happiness that they might be marrying somebody because of their money and because of the things they can bring to that relationship and in a way that's just as sort of you know 
cutthroat as the way that men are talking about women. And I have to mention my favourite scene in the novel where she is taking Bingley through the woodlands on that moonlit walk <laughs> in the perfect situation for a proposal. And at some point, the footpath has like got 15 different crossings in it. It's like, what footpath is this? I don't understand how this such a maze. Because I mean, there aren't. I mean, any English village, you're never more than five minutes from a building, are you really? <laughs> there was that wonderful scene where they're standing outside the, looking at the car, and um, I think it's the what's the name of the widow, Mrs. Whatever her name is, begins with D. Dal- Dalton. Dalton, that's it. And they're they're looking at the the car and imagining that that's the car they'll have when they when they get married. And you know, Lucy, and Sally says, "Oh, you know, I, I what would you rather have, the two seater or the Rolls Royce?" And that that real kind of um, yeah materialism about it. And both of them are very practical about um, you know because there's a love triangle there. If we want to call it a love triangle, of the the two women acknowledge that they're both fighting over the same man, and it's you know may the best woman win really. Um, and, and I love the fact that they acknowledge the fact that he's not even that great. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> sort of like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this, but like yeah. you know, we both realise that he's not quite. We just want his money. Yeah, uh, he's he's the best we can both you know we can both find at this moment in time. So you know, it yeah. is. Ladies. No, like, I love him more than you do. No, no it's not something right. like that. <laughs> and I think that, that very sort of transactional and practical approach to it is is really interesting, and the fact that everybody knows that's what they're doing, and in the end, mm. it's it's Mr. Bingley himself who becomes becomes the fool over it, and who who has his um, life ruined as he as he claims um, f- from Sally's actions. But I mean, I I thought that was really interesting as well, and something that that quite very that's very common point between the the two books is is those double standards of what is and isn't acceptable for for a woman to do so we see jimmy who is the the man that sally has been in love with Mm -hmm. and on the rocks about before she she comes back to london at the beginning of the war they've they've had you know a month where they had a sexual relationship in italy wonderful why not enjoy yourselves fabulous um and imagine they had a wonderful time and Sally hasn't moved on from that at the beginning of the novel she's very much in love with him and you know he's he's married to somebody else he's moved on everything's fine and yet when that relationship is is discovered it's it's Sally who is is shamed for it and mm-hmm. will have to bear the consequences of it whereas you know Jimmy's absolutely fine and um that is really interesting to see in Patricia and in, in Peter's relationship, you know, he he he's the one who has the affair first, and mm. yet he's absolutely, you know, unprepared to be forgiving of um, Patricia. Though even though I did think, like, if you just actually told him the truth, because you've made things out to be far worse than they actually were, yeah. <laughs> um, by telling him this ridiculous pack of lies. Um, but it's it, it's really interesting how those double standards are also voiced by by the the writers and so you do have that sense even in Sally in the Rocks obviously being an earlier novel of of the actual injustice of it all and of how society treats um women and it was interesting to me to I did a little bit of reading around um Winifred Dodds and how popular an author she was before disappearing off a cliff as so many female Mm. writers did at that time I'm wondering to myself I you know I wonder how many women at the time read this and and really felt that same anger if she was speaking to women like her women middle class women who who obviously did feel this injustice you know this isn't a kind of you know radical it's not presented as a radical political position to have and again our perception of what women thought or what people thought and how people felt etc at at the time is, is really disproved by these popular novels that are being unearthed and reprinted like this we're actually seeing this is what was contemporary culture for a lot of people when we only read classics and um, novels written by people from a certain social position we do get a really skewed perspective of what people's moral values and thought processes were and I think it's really interesting that the sort of main person leading the charge in, against Sally is a woman. I yeah. mean, Miss Maggie is oh, one of the most that. horrendous characters I've yeah. ever come across, but so believable. Mm. Um, and she's doing this, I mean, maybe from genuine moral indignation, but mostly just because she yeah. enjoys seeing other people suffer. Uh, something I did try to bring out in my in my afterword that I thought was interesting was the idea that this was the only life open to Miss Maggie. Like if she'd been born... A generation later she might have been or maybe a couple of generations she might have been able to 
be a lawyer or you know use these these investigative talents that she has in in a more worthy way but as it is she's also a victim of what women were allowed to do in her generation which is essentially nothing and just be there to be the village gossip i guess yeah and it's i think there's a there's a pit that there, there is an element of pity you can have for her um you know her sister is is also a very tragic character who who miss um maggie's always says oh well you know she wanted to get married and i, and I didn't but but Miss Maggie, I think, probably did want that because she seems to take great pleasure in ruining the prospects of anyone who looks like they're going to be, you know, settle down or, or have some kind of, you know, successful successful marriage. And that bitterness, I, I think, stems from, as you say, lack of opportunity. But I, I also think jealousy and, mm. um, you know, thinking of a society where where women are told from you know birth that their only value and their only hope in their life is is to get married if you do miss out on that what does that do to you as a person what does that do to your sense of self-worth what does it do to your your sense of um purpose in life and it's yeah I think it it could destroy people and I think that's what society has done to her I I like to think that she's not an inherently awful person I think the society she lives in has made her that way and speaking of uh sort of career opportunities something I really loved in ex-wife is seeing this day-to-day life of of, her, of Patricia as a copywriter mm. um and speaking as someone who is professionally a copywriter for albeit for a charity rather than for, for this it was um I mean I don't know how re- realistic it is i mean it does feel like she's suddenly got some knowledge of that world that the sort of uh phone calls constantly moving advertising space around i don't know if it's if it was quite that frenetic and cutthroat but are they great we also have to talk about the clothes in ex-wife which is its own (laughs) wonderful thing i wrote down a uh, made a note of a quote which was a Clothes were real. I bought m- many clothes so that when Peter called up, I could say, "Come over instantly," and I would have been ma- I, and I'd be marvelously dressed. I dressed carefully always because I might meet some friend of Peter's who would go back to him and say, "I saw Patricia. She was looking beautiful." Then he would call up sooner. It's wonderful. <laughs> Ex-wife very much feels like a New York novel. It couldn't really happen anywhere else. I think maybe that's what speaks to people. Um, I know Alyssa Bennett in her introduction to our edition talks about it as being. When she first read it, it felt like somebody was writing about her life or different elements of it. And I think that's what other people feel. That's what I've heard from readers so far. Um, And I do love the way that Parrot um, brings to life this particular um, era in the city's life. And I think there's something, you know, it's not just the parties, the going up to Harlem, um, the drinking, these exciting kind of elements of life there, but there's something about the city itself. There's a wonderful bit, I think, where Patricia is quite, um, she's feeling rather low, but she says something about, um, she has a feeling that New York was a beautiful place to live, like no matter what was happening to her while she lived there. And there's something comforting in that. Um, And I think that that speaks to so many people who spent time in this city uh, and who've enjoyed living there and and lived aspects of their life there. Uh, And I think it also it feels like it fits into a long tradition of those sorts of novels. I always say to people that, you know, if you watch, if you've watched Sex in the City, this is a kind of earlier version of that. If you've read um, Rona Jaffe's The Best of Everything about women um, trying to make it in New York in the the 50s, I think it is, you know, in the advertising world, like these are all novels that speak to the same sort of story. They tell the same story, but they tell the same story at different points in the city's history. And there is something that uh, there's a sort of truth to be found in all of them. Uh, that doesn't really change uh, over the years, even though they've been written in different periods. Hello, it's future Simon here. Sadly, the recording thing we use cut us off at this point, so we kept chatting merrily away, not realising that it wasn't recording. Thankfully, not for very long. Uh, we hadn't. We more or less said everything we were going to say. We did lose a few bits, which is a shame. Uh, among them, of course, we lost the decision-making. So I asked Lucy and Rachel just to record a little bit where they say what they've decided on between Sally on the Rocks and ex-wife. But what fun it was to have Lucy. You also cut out us thanking her so much for coming. It was such a pleasure having her. I think uh, we hope to have her back at some point. Uh, And I'll also let you know that in the next episode, not actually in honour of Lucy, but we were doing a novel called Lucy by Jamaica Kincaid and a novel called The Buddha in the Attic by Julie Otsuka. So I better say what I choose, won't it? It won't come much as a surprise because I love it so much. It's Sally on the Rocks. 
I really like ex-wife, but there's that vibrancy and that vitality and liveliness to Sally that makes her one of the favorite characters I've read in a long time. And um, yeah, I love them both, both these books. But yeah, Sally on the Rocks really has a special place in my heart. And now I hand over to Lucy and Rachel's recordings to let you know what's going to win the Teal Books decision. I love Sally. I was very glad to spend time with her and I'm so pleased that I got the chance to read this novel. Um, and I will always have a space for her in my heart, but I'm afraid I'm going to go with Ex-Wife, which to me, um, I don't know, there's something about the freshness of the voice, uh, the sympathy I feel for Patricia and the sort of wonderful um, way that I think this novel feels so relevant to contemporary life yet it was written such a long time ago um, that was the thing that first attracted me to it and it was the thing I think that I'm going to remember every time I read it I've read it a few times now and each time I'm still moved and excited by it uh, so that's my vote for me both of these books were really interesting reads in terms of being kind of against my expect my initial expectations and, and pushing back against what we might expect of books from this time period and the, the types of female experiences we might expect to read about from these time periods. Um, I've really enjoyed Sally on the Rocks for its humour and for Sally's independence. Um, there are elements of it that I felt were really quite feminist and I found that really interesting from a novel from this um, Edwardian period. And I really enjoyed the humour of Ex-Wife as well and the modernity, the freshness of it. Love the New York setting um, and that sense of it being a real New York novel was really exciting and interesting for me, made, making me think of, of my own time in living in New York when I was the same age as the, as the, as the character, Patricia. So... Um, that element of it was was perhaps more interesting to me than reading Sally on the Rocks set in a quite a conventional village setting, which is is quite a common feature of of books that I would ordinarily read. So, the the New York Jazz Age setting for me was much more exciting and interesting to to be immersed in. That so that being said, I mean it's a difficult choice between the two. They're both really good books. They're both doing something quite different to what we would expect of novels of their period. They're both um, you know, really vibrant, interesting female characters. But for me, because of that New York setting, I I will be going with ex-wife as my as my choice. Um, but that being said, I still really enjoyed Tally on the Rocks. And um, yeah, it's not that I didn't enjoy it. It's just the ex-wife pipped it slightly to the paste on the setting. Bye. <laughs> 